Josh Bloom is a professor of astronomy at UC Berkeley and is also the CTO and co-founder of Wise.io, a company that is building machine learning products. Josh, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. What is a machine learning system? Well, the way I think about uh, machine learning systems is one that uh, lives in a production environment and is supplying something that machine learning does, which is namely uh, making predictions that have some value. And in the case of uh, in the case of what we do, it has some business value to our clients. In the case of scientific workflows, uh, there are pieces of uh, of machine learning applications that are looking at data and uh, essentially helping. Um, scientists do better with that data uh, from discovery to, to inference. Um, mm. So the way we think about it is uh, not so much what you might think of machine learning at the um, academic level where you're writing papers and showing, you know, my scaling curve is better than your scaling curve, but something that's actually showing uh, real value to uh, sort of end users. So it, you do see a tight mapping between machine learning systems and predictions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in some sense, maybe I'm limiting myself too much to uh, talking about those in production where you have a system that's interacting with uh, the world. Um, those are the ones that I've spent most of my time building at WISE and the ones that I was doing uh, working at UC Berkeley um, uh, in, the, in the scientific case. There are plenty of other machine learning systems that could uh, act in more of a static way, giving high-level insights. Um, so you can imagine what's called unsupervised learning, where you take a lot of data and you answer questions with um, interesting machine learning tools that even people haven't thought uh, to ask. So finding you know, clusters in a high-dimensional space, for instance, may give you some interesting insights of where to uh, put more of your resources. Um, or if you're doing drug discovery, there may be some really interesting facets of the data that you didn't realize cluster together, and that may be an interesting avenue for further pursuit. So there's certainly realms where uh, machine learning is useful for giving insights you know, in a one-off kind of way or in a, in a sort of slow way, where people are the ultimate consumers of it. The kinds of things that I think about when I think about machine learning and production are ones where you've got uh, data flowing in, you've got uh, answers that are required in a short time scale, um, not necessarily real time, but uh, you know, for instance, if you've got uh, a type of application where um, you need to make, uh, say, microloans you know, in a peer-to-peer sense, I'm sort of making up a company here on the fly, um, you wouldn't want to have thousands and thousands of analysts looking at all of that data and trying to make decisions in a few seconds. Um, but you might want to have machine learning opining on whether this is a good loan or not, or what perhaps the cost of the loan would be, um, given the different risk factors, and then push that along. Ultimately, in the end, you're going to wind up having people be on the receiving end of those predictions, um, but it may be sort of deeper into the stack than they know about. Mm, okay. And so much of the talks that I've seen you give deal with this idea of putting machine learning systems into the wild, into production. And I saw one talk you gave called a systems view of machine learning. And one of the first topics that you discussed was this paper that came out of Google called Machine Learning, the High Interest Credit Card of Technical Debt. And we had Dee Scully on the show to talk about that paper. It was a really interesting conversation. Why did that paper resonate with you? 
Well, I think as and I listened to your podcast with Dee Scully, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I, th- I, I, think that's an, I think that's an important paper, as he said, not because uh, that Google team discovered something novel about how different machine learning and production actually is from normal um, software engineering. Uh, and in fact, Leon Bateau at Facebook has been talking a lot about the, the erosion of the as- abstraction boundaries that you typically like to build up when you build um, software stacks that comes with machine learning. Uh, but as, as D. Scully said, it was because they were the ones that took the time to actually write it down. And when they go and they give talks, um, there's a lot of head shaking because they, they wind up putting to words the kinds of things that practitioners uh, feel all the time, that there is something um, different about machine learning. And the way that he describes it well in that paper is that data winds up sort of carrying with it um, these, uh, these uh, boundary abstraction erosion techniques, right? So you wind up intermingling parts of your stack in ways that you never thought you could, even though you have very specific, say, APIs uh, of how these things should talk to each other. Um, and so w- the reason why I bring that up when I give talks is because I often will wind up talking to a largely academic environment or an environment where you've got um, software engineers who are sort of interested in machine learning and think what they need to do is just bring in another module and then that will, that will solve their problem. Um, it's, it's particularly important for those people to understand that this is a different kind of beast. And so I like to talk about the D. Scully paper as I think one of the canons of, of, of data science literature. Um, and, and it hasn't, I think, arrived to that point yet, but it is such an important paper for people to understand. I also use it in my own company um, in helping us uh, when we're selling our product with our clients or potential clients in understanding just how hard it is to do themselves. So we, we use that paper as a, as a selling tool in some sense um, around the build-buy decision, uh, mm. which you, you wind up finding a lot now. You've got very sophisticated companies who are now getting... Um, you know, sort of deep DNA around um, data uh, uh, curation um, and and making use of data for for their core business. And when they start thinking about bringing uh, you know deep analytics or or machine learning out to various aspects of their business that perhaps isn't their core, say in their HR department or, or customer support, um, the nominal assumption is that I can just bring in a couple data scientists, they can solve this problem, and then we're done. Um, but as that paper says, and I'm, I'm not going to get the, the quote exactly right, uh, it may come as some surprise to academics to know that machine learning codes in production are at most 5% you know, machine learning and machine learning algorithms and, and ni- at least 95% glue code. Um, so it's a massive gulf from going from something that looks wonderful on paper where you've got a, a beautiful result and you say, my accuracy is going to be this if we could only put this uh, in, into the wild and then actually putting it into a wild and all the um, bugaboos that come with that. So perhaps the world agnostic of this paper is the mistaken idea that we could just sprinkle machine learning onto our pre-existing system uh, and it's cleanly partitioned and it will just give us a more robust uh, more delightful experience when in fact the reality is that machine learning uh, introduces some uh, maybe not tight couplings but 
certainly integration points that uh, will affect the business logic of your software. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great way to put it. Okay, interesting. So I, I'd like to get your idea of a generalized architecture for a machine learning system. What are the different components that compose a machine learning system? Uh, well, it obviously all starts and ends with the data. Um, and uh, if you're starting to talk about the software stack, there has to be an ETL component that is interacting with the outside world. So if you think of if you think of the, your final machine learning system um, in terms of endpoints uh, in some larger uh, software, um, you know, and and uh, services oriented architecture. Um, you have a number of endpoints where the data is flowing in and perhaps metadata about that data is also flowing in through different endpoints. And on the other side of that, you want predictions that are going to be consumed in other parts of the, of the, of, of the large software project. Um, and those can also be expressed as endpoints. So if we define a, a machine learning system as that, you're already putting these, these boundaries on, you know, what, essentially looks like a black box, although there's lots of exciting things of being able to look inside of that block, black box and tweak it. Um, the, getting back to the, the Scully paper, uh, I guess the argument is that there is no such thing as you know just restful endpoints where all the data happens upstream and that's not really part of the system and all the, data, all the predictions come on the back end of that and that's not really part of the system either. The whole point is that the system is the full end-to-end. But if we're sort of allowing ourselves from a software perspective to think about where we would put those boundaries, you can imagine having a machine learning uh, system or a large fraction of that machine learning system be those uh, ones defined by those endpoints. So the question then is, what's inside of that? So inside of that is the thing that's going to wind up consuming that data, making sense of um, how we take this stream of data, normalizing it into a schema that can then be featureized, and by featureized, this is where uh, you wind up pulling um, signals out of that data uh, with um, with code. Uh, so, in in the case of uh, audio data, for instance, you might be running um, fast Fourier transforms on that and pulling out dominant frequencies. Um, in the case of text-based data, you might be doing some natural language processing and pulling out um, important words. Um, and there's a whole bunch of interesting work along all the different um, facets of, uh, of feature engineering. On the other side of that, because most machine learning um, models require essentially what you might call rectangularized data, um, you've got rows and columns, rows being um, different instances of your training examples and columns being the different dimensions of the, of, of the featureized data. Um, you are essentially building a model that outputs what the, uh, what the final labels are in the case of supervised learning. Um, in the case of unsupervised learning, you're then basically just taking those rows and columns and trying to make, make sense of how, how these instances are related to each other. Um, you build those models. Um, you obviously have to have a, uh, a sense of what all the different hyperparameters are of the model and the featureization, and in some sense, some hypervisor, which is during the full um, creation process, making sure that you're using the optimal models to get an optimal answer. And then in some sense, you're done. You have a model that um, correctly or most accurately outputs um, new predictions on old data. Um, and then the way to think about it is you then want to take that model and the whole featureization pipeline that you've created 
uh, apply it to new data as it winds up coming in, and then spitting that back out of, of the back end. So each one of those pieces, in some sense, can be modularized and containerized. And in fact, what we do at, at WISE is express these different pieces um, inside of Docker containers um, and make sure that um, the, the sort of core IP of what we've built um, that allows us to do this stuff very efficient and, and uh, both from a memory perspective and time perspective um, is expressed in a high-level language that allows our data science team to be able to create these workflows effectively as a glorified config file or JSON file, um, and then orchestrating all that together inside of a large scalable infrastructure like AWS is um, is really what most of the engineering effort is here. Mm, okay, so we will get into the those implementation details. Uh, those are definitely really interesting. But speaking at a higher level, just about newer software packages. I mean, you mentioned Docker, but I was thinking. Um, you know, some of the things that you've mentioned uh, in talks that you've given, software packages like Spark and Theano and Scikit-Learn, these are software instantiations of algorithms that get used in practice. And these software packages make it much easier to do things like k-nearest neighbor or decision forests or even deep learning. What is the broader impact of this improved ease of use that we have with machine learning algorithms? Um, so you can talk about it both in a, a positive way and a negative way. Um, and the negative is more about just sort of these beautiful um, nooses that we've created that allow people to hang themselves. Um, <laughs> the way I think about it in a positive way, it, it means quicker time to value for a data science team building a new machine learning project in, in, in production. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're in a data science team and it comes down from on high that we need to add machine learning to this various aspect of our of our product, um, you're going to think about how you would wind up constructing that workflow. You may already have existing infrastructures like we've built um, proprietary ones at, at WISE, and you just sort of plug into that. Um, but if you're starting from scratch, unlike what it would have taken five years ago or, or so, um, you can now get up and running with a, a very interesting and useful um, solution or essentially a prototype in a very short amount of time just because you're not having to do all the software carpentry for the actual model creation. One of the, some of the most interesting packages, I think, are the ones that are going upstream from just, say, uh, allowing you to do lots of different types of deep learning to ones that are allowing you to do um, featureization in a parallel and memory efficient way. Um, so for instance, GraphLab Dotto um, is an interesting um, software package that isn't just focused on algorithms in the Python ecosystem, I should say, um, but is also giving a lot of thought to how you take, say, a corpus of text and, um, and featureize that very quickly. Spark, for instance, also has some plugins that's allowing you to um, do that featureization um, very efficiently as well. Most data scientists, when, um, when you sit them down and ask where they spend most of their time, will wind up having those few algorithms and software packages that they really like uh, for the learning part of it. But most of the original thought, most of the hard stuff is in the feature engineering. Um, and so... Uh, that's, that's, that's an absolutely wonderful place that we've arrived at, that we've got different pieces of that software stack that are the instantiations of those algorithms that have, you know, wonderful provable properties on paper. Um, the problem is, again, it comes back to that, that uh, systems view. 
um, if you uh, if you're building a model, say using um, you know let's say TensorFlow for instance, um, and you really don't have much experience with the domain, um, so you're trying to build something that's let's say uh, give some insight into videos as the data streaming in, you're going to wind up spending a lot of your time on the ETL part of where does this data come from, what happens if there's a frame that drops out. There's all the things that have nothing to do with machine learning itself, but just with the, with the data engineering and the data provenance. Um, so a lot of time will wind up being spent on that. But of course, you know, again, five years ago, if you were going to build some cutting edge, uh, you know, deep learning network, you'd be coding all this stuff from scratch and you'd have to learn CUDA um, to work on GPUs. And now you just don't have to do any of that anymore. So it becomes turnkey in some sense from, uh, um, you know, all software is just uh, killing bottlenecks. Um, it just removes a, a huge amount of bottleneck um, uh, around the whole model building. Sure. Okay. So the removes the bottleneck around the model building, and then perhaps shifts the bottleneck to the production. Would you say is are, are so like I mean, what are the challenges to putting a machine learning system into production? So the first part is getting, um, which which I think is the the bread and butter of of you know well trained data scientists, and I'll use air quotes here because I have thoughts on what a data scientist is, is and isn't. Um, we can maybe talk about that later. Uh, but getting to that first step of showing on paper that from historical data, the model that you've built and essentially the entire workflow that you built would be useful for the question that's been asked. And, and that's, that's an important thing that oftentimes we don't, we don't discuss because it seems so obvious for practitioners is that doing good machine learning in production means that you've articulated well what the question is that you're asking or the a related one, which is what is the business value of the, of the answer? Um, and until you've articulated that question, everything you're doing is just exploration. So if, you've, if you're presented with a large um, corpus of, of data and you know, your boss says, find something interesting that may be of value, that's a very different pathway than I need machine learning to, let's say, improve this widget right here. And I need to know whether that thing should be red or blue and do everything you can to get me that point because I've articulated upstream from you what the, what the real value of doing that right is. Um, so there's a huge amount of exploratory work that could go into something which eventually could wind up going into production if it's, it's determined that that's important enough. Um, but when you've already decided this is the path I need to take or this is the answer I need to, uh, to get to because I know I need to put in production, obviously the first step is to show on paper um, in retrospect that with the data that we already have in hand, um, things could be really useful for us. Um, so that's, that's step one. And then, of course, there's all the, um, the soft aspects of then getting the buy-in to then go to the next step of actually putting it in production. Typically, when you talk about putting machine learning in production um, for an established business, you're talking about replacing existing systems. Or um, if you're doing it well, I think you wind up living alongside existing workflows. And there you have to understand how do you have basically two inputs to this problem, one coming from potentially people or business rules or the status quo of how this workflow has been done in the past, and then um, this newfangled way of, of getting a machine learning answer. So to be specific, going back to the original uh, uh, business problem we set up around microloans, you can imagine that you've actually had people 
you know, in some uh, foreign country helping you make those real-time decisions about whether you uh, issue this loan. Now somebody says, well, let's try this great thing that looks awesome on paper of us being able to get slightly higher um, ROI out of, uh, you know, uh, putting machine learning into this system. Now maybe you, you try to have to architect something like 10% of all the decisions being done by the machine. You run effectively an A-B test between humans and people. You wind up realizing that, that, that the humans are doing not as well as people in the long run because it takes a while for, there's, for there to be a default. So you have to be measuring um, you know, essentially who's winning. And then over time, you might creep up um, all of the uh, predictions coming from the machine. So that means you have you have to put what you've just built uh, in a workflow sense in, into an environment that's already been running. And there's obviously big pains um, around that. Um, you have to be able to monitor and measure how well it's doing and make sure that you've got uh, you know, some fail-safes so that if the machine goes wild and gives everybody a loan for you know for zero interest, um, you're not you're not going to allow that to happen. So there have to be these safeguards outside of that, and then you have to constantly be monitoring its quality versus all the alternatives. And then once you get to this um, you know sort of happy place where you've now replaced the old workflow where people you know experts have been opining on data, you have to be thinking very um, deeply about the explore exploit. Um, one of the challenges with machine learning and production, which again, going back to the Scully paper is discussed, is that when you build a model that looks great, you put it in production and on the first day, you make 10% more money than you would have um, uh, uh, by other means. It doesn't mean the next day you're not going to lose 100%, right? Because the world is changing. The data inputs that you have are changing. And uh, a critical part of all of this is making sure that you've built feedback loops um, into the system, um, both positive and negative feedback loops. Um, you need to make sure that if you are uh, making a prediction about what's going to happen in the future, that you get the final result of what actually did happen. Because if you're wrong, that data needs to be fed back into the next time that you've built, you build a model. And you know, the, the best companies are continuously building models. Right. So um, think about, uh, say, Gmail and spam. Right. We don't even think anymore about us going through and curating our you know, business rules that we might have built up, like in Microsoft Outlook 15 years ago and said, well, actually, if it has the word Viagra, um, but it comes from my, <laughs> Nigeria, but it comes from my dad because he's a Nigerian Viagra salesman who just won the lottery, <laughs> then do this, then do that. Right. So. Um, so you wind up having to um, continually build these models and the best machine learning systems in production, the ones that I think get us to the place where machine learning is just part of our lives is the ones where all this stuff is just happening seamlessly under the hood, right? So you don't know when Gmail has built and updated the model for spam. You just continually wind up believing that its spam filter is better than anything that we've ever seen in the past. Um, and so they have to have a full system for building these models, putting them in production, and likely what they're doing is rolling out new models for a small subset of the population, seeing how well those do, rolling them back when they don't do well, and having a full end-to-end -end system that's capable of doing that without any noticeable impact to the end user. So the Gmail example, uh, you know, obviously we can't know for sure what happened in this instance, but 
Uh, I think you've touched on this in one of your talks about how Linus Torvalds went off on a rant about how Gmail randomly started categorizing all of his, uh, a bunch of his calendar invites and stuff as spam. Um, and this was, uh, I think, shortly after they had announced some breakthrough in their machine learning uh, spam filter categorization algorithm. So, you know, hypothetically, like, do, do you, when, when, when Linus blogged about that, do you think uh, the, the Gmail spam team suddenly had all their hair caught on fire? Or do you think it was a simple, like, click of a mouse, roll back the model somehow type of, I mean, how, how, how in, in the ideal world of a machine learning production system, what would that rollback process look like? Uh, it's a great question. So uh, I should say, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but I do believe he had a follow-up um, uh, blog post, which ironically was on, on Google+, um, saying, yeah, things look better now with my spam filter, so thanks. So either something happened or he was he was an anomaly um, uh, or they rolled back just for him or something, right? Um, he's a big enough personality that he probably gets special treatment. <laughs> um, it's So there's a couple of things to say about that. Uh, Number one is, you know, I like to talk about fault-tolerant machine learning, which is that in the end, if you make a mistake with your answer, so in this case, is it spam or not, it's not catastrophic. So you're not, people aren't going to lose their life, right? Um, and yes, Linus got mad, and maybe it wasn't very good for Google stock, you know, at the one penny level or something like that. But um, in the end, it wasn't such a big deal because the data was still there. He was obviously looking through his spam filters every now and then because he knew there were messages. It wasn't. It wasn't the end of the world. And another example I show is where um, Netflix uh, recommended um, Sons of Anarchy to a six-year-old, and there's a cool. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a there's a cool uh, little screenshot on Reddit. Um, that's not the end of the world. If the kid clicks it, you know, and watches a little stuff, he'll probably be freaked out. You know, that's uh, maybe the guy cancels his uh, his account, but it's not catastrophic. When you talk about what is catastrophic, you would talk about machine learning in the real world. Um, ultimately, it comes down to what's the loss function, um, mm. and there is a cost of being wrong. Um, in both directions. There's a type one and type two error. And, um, you know, you're trying to minimize the amount of false positives um, while also minimizing the amount of false negatives. And, um, you know, Google spam filters gotten to the point where most people feel like where you are on that, what's called the receiver operator characteristic curve or rock curve, where you are on that for most people is fine. But, Somebody like Linus may never, ever want to miss a single message that could potentially be of interest to him, in which case, you know, 0.1% false negative rate, um, or depending on how you look at it, maybe it's a false positive, he can't stand that at all. And so one of the challenges that Google has is that they've got, you know, hundreds of millions of users. Not everyone's rock curve is the same, right? Not everyone's sense of a loss function is the same. And so, um, you know, ideally you would wind up having in a, a multi-user system that's being served by essentially a single model or a, sing or a model that's built off of individuals and leverages, um, you know, the, uh, more of a global model. You'd want to start learning over time what people's sense of loss is, right? So potentially Google would be looking at how many times are people looking in their spam filter and pushing things to the other side, not mm -hmm. just to get 
new labels about what they got right or wrong, but how important is it for them to catch messages that you know potentially could be of interest to them? I, for mm-hmm. instance, never look through my spam filter. If there's stuff in there that's important, I'm assuming people are going to wind up emailing me by other means or text me or something. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's critical is when you think about putting machine learning in production is make sure that in, in a sense, you have these ultimate safeguards where you're not going to wind up pulling the trigger on something um, that could be catastrophic. If, it, if, if you're making predictions of that scale and of that import, you'd like to have people be the final arbiter of whether this is worth going or not, right? And so mm. you think about um, AI on drones, right? And there's now a big push to try to get, for instance, the UN to ban um, you know, artificial intelligence drones where they're basically making kill decisions um, on their own. There, it could be that you allow them to make the kill recommendation, and somebody just has to say yes or no as the final um, you know, safeguard on that. Interesting. So, okay, you, you mentioned the well-trained data scientist uh, as a, I guess, point of contention. I, I, I have a number of conversations with, uh, with my friend Srini Katamati, who has uh, been on the show, and uh, he... You know, he was talking about how, you know, data scientists, there's there's kind of this bifurcation of roles between data scientists and data engineers. And then I guess there's also data analysts. Um, and, you know, I guess we can partition the behavior of the classical data scientist into these three different things. Or, I don't know, I'm just curious about what your... What your views? You know, you you mentioned the well-trained data scientist. What what are your views on on data science and the role of the data scientist? So, the way that I've um, uh, said it, it, it as succinctly as I I think I can state it is that I don't believe that there are data scientists, but I believe there is such a thing as data science data science teams. Um, uh, okay. And so that is mostly just a statement that you know the the analog would be. There's no such thing as a full stack engineer. Um, mm. So this is this is somebody who is at best incredibly good at one part of the stack and quite knowledgeable about other parts of the stack. Um, and so, in the context of data science, if you look at uh, the the way it's been traditionally defined as the um, you know, kind of union of somebody who's good at um, uh, math and algorithms um, at, and computer science with another part of the Venn diagram of somebody who's good at hacking and programming. And then the other part of the, the Venn diagram is somebody who knows um, uh, the domain problem and can interact and can explain their results to a, a broader audience, either their boss um, or, their, or their customers. And that, so that, that one, I think, originated from Drew Conway, for instance. Um, I look at the, that Venn diagram as essentially a, a defining a null set in an individual. Um, <laughs> but when you're building up a data science team, uh, the idea of hiring somebody who's got a PhD in stats or computer science, somebody who has, you know, is a seasoned software engineer and uh, you know, maybe somebody with an MBA who knows some computer programming means that you know, the three of them can get together and solve uh, a really interesting um, problem. Uh, doesn't mean that they don't have to know how the other pieces of the, of the pie fit together. Um, doesn't mean that this MBA person cannot know any programming at all, or this um, this algorithms person 
doesn't know what a what a you know what the Python programming language is, they, they still have to be knowledgeable about other aspects of of what what data science is. But they so don't. This have is like to the, be the team of the team of T shaped people over the singular. What is it? N shaped person or yeah. So I think well. Uh, it, the the idea of a pie shaped person came pie from shaped, somebody right. named Alex Zelay, and the idea is there that you've got somebody who's incredibly deep at say a domain question, who's per- potentially written papers on you know I'll take something from my own field uh, in astronomy, you're writing papers about some some uh, cutting edge question in cosmology, but then you're also basically pushing the envelope in a new realm of statistics, and so those are that sort of the deep two legs there. Um, and then instead of T, I call it a gamma-shaped person, right? So it's somebody who's very deep in one of those aspects. But then if you think about the little um, drop-down, uh, then that person could have a lot of knowledge about what is cutting edge in statistics, if not being able to be the person to, um, to actually uh, push that knowledge themselves. It means that when they meet somebody who's also gamma-shaped, who's very deep in stats and knows a little bit of astronomy, for instance, the two of them can get together and do something novel. Mm, okay, interesting. So let, let's talk about Wise.io, which is your company. What are you building there? So we're building these um, end-to-end applications that uh, sit on top of SaaS-based platforms around customer success. So think of us as... Um, Broadly, the intelligence layer atop, um, you know, people-to-people interactions for business. And as one of the specific things that we have out in the market uh, is um, a set of um, applications around customer support. So in that case, we're helping, um, we're helping our customers in efficiency and automation around how they interact with their, uh, with their clients. And so what we do is we wind up learning from past interactions of how a company has interacted with their clients. Say somebody um, sends a, a, a brief uh, support email and says, I need help resetting my password. Um, they will wind up getting back typically something that feels somewhat bespoke for them saying, I'm so sorry you're having a hard time with your password. Why don't you go to this web page or here's the three steps you need to do to reset your password. Those are typically templatized um, by, by support teams. We're effectively making predictions for this incoming message that it can be answered with this, um, with this template or with this macro. And in the cases where we have a lot of confidence, we'll just answer it. So, um, there's a, it solves a lot of pain um, in, in the sense that you have these support teams which are growing very quickly um, and they're not capable of hiring people fast enough to actually fulfill in a timely way the kinds of requests that are incoming. Um, mm. And so this allows um, support teams to scale sublinearly, which uh, turns out to be really important for companies that are growing. Interestingly, what we've seen, and we've been told this by CEOs, is that they see the number of support tickets growing linearly with revenue. So companies that are um, growing um, and growing their revenue are having, obviously, more clients, which is a great thing. But even if they've figured out a way to scale all the other aspects of their business, there's still this sort of endpoint where when people touch other people – um, you think that you need sort of a one-to-one relationship. And in the end, what we're able to do is leverage the power of what um, you know, great support agents are already doing and basically at, become sort of um, super augmentative in their, in their work so they can answer many more problems uh, in the same finite amount of time. 
Okay, sure. So I totally understand the um, the product offering, and I'm curious about the the implementation side of things. So at the first level, like I think about the data ingestion layer, and um, I think about like all you know different different uh, companies that have customer service have different types of different data formats and. Uh, how, how does Wise.io normalize the data from different clients to be consumed? Because I, you know, you, you have to consume them in your machine learning system in a way that is, you know, well formed by the machine learning system. So how do you normalize, or I guess maybe the term is clean that data, like uh, to to, uh, to be ingested by your machine learning systems? So one of the decisions we made early on in the company was to work with um, third-party SaaS-based, you know, essentially systems of record so that we wouldn't have to be the data lake um, for where people are interacting with other people. And what's nice about that is obviously we didn't have to build that part of the stack um, and we could work inside of, um, you know, API. So, sorry, what's what's an example of a, of a data lake like that? Uh, uh, Zendesk, um, sales, okay, Salesforce, right? Right. So these are places where essentially there are UIs on top of databases um, with mm. some services a- around them. Um, that's the interaction point where, um, you know, incoming emails from customer is then dealt with by a customer support agent. So we build on top of those systems. And the nice thing about that is there is a fairly fixed schema of Mm -hmm. how the data actually is presented to us. So we don't know what the text is or even the language that's going to be used inside of, say, an incoming support message. But we know that there's a text field and we know there's a date-time field. We know that there's a from field. We know that there's a connection in in a CRM sense back to who is this person, how much is this account worth, et cetera. And so it allows us to build data science workflows against data we've never seen before because we're building it against... Um, a schema that's essentially fixed and knowable for okay. us. So there is no data cleaning in a sense that we don't have to get a new customer as they wind up onboarding and go, oh, no, they've got this other feed, <laughs> um, and now there's all these other fields we've never seen before. We've we've built um, sort of a middleware layer, which has nothing to do with machine learning, that is capable of ingesting that. We've normalized, for instance, both how Zendesk thinks about support from their own internal schema and how um, Salesforce thinks about support. And then mm. we're going on to a third, um, a third system. It turns out that you know a ticket is a ticket, right? And and a conversation is basically a conversation. And and all the metadata that you have about that is something that you could wind up ingesting, rectangularizing it after you featureize it, and then building models on it. And doing all that without any people in the loop is sort of um, where a lot of our innovations have come. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's a beautiful uh, statement of the problem uh, to you. If it's coming to you in this well-formed, uh, well-formed format, that's uh, in high contrast to. I, I did a show recently uh, about this company, OpenGov, and um, they're kind of offering like a. You can think of it as sort of like a Quicken for governments, mm-hmm. and so you know. But the, in order to ingest the government data, they have to work closely with the governments and you know figure out what data format it's in and this could just be like a a showstopper problem um but it but it sounds like you you know the by having this sort of middle not not middleman but you've got salesforce or zendesk um architecting the schema for you and you just have to abide by their contract so that's it's beautiful um so okay let's talk about implementation at a lower level um 
you know, uh, one of your goals is to have a system that simplifies and abstracts away the machine learning process so that the data scientists and the engineers don't have to spend the time onboarding clients. What are the steps to achieving this? Well, certainly a lot of painful steps in the sense that you have to have data scientists and um, and engineers being part of the the initial onboarding of your initial customers. But where you're where you're trying to get to is building those systems that um, don't require them or or minimize the total amount of time that it takes to onboard. And that's how you wind up building a scalable enterprise software system. Um, is to not require people to be part of the of that onboarding process, let alone the, the maintenance process. Um, so as I said at the beginning, we've built this um, sort of end-to-end machine learning workflow that in, in, in the case of uh, endpoints, as we talk about machine learning as a black box, which I'll say right away, as we said before, not a great way to think about it, but um, we've allowed the data scientists to live within this black box and build out workflows and make tweaks to existing templates of, let's say, so another uh, feature that we have isn't just making recommendations to agents of how to respond to a ticket, but we'll also automatically characterize an incoming ticket so that it can be routed to, let's say, the right agent who has the highest probability of closing it in the shortest amount of time with the highest customer satisfaction, Um, or just making um, predictions effectively of which categories these uh, belong to so that our clients can use that data to, um, you know, do reporting and things like that, and which is which is required internally. So you know we think of that as a, essentially a class, a multi-class classification problem that data scientists have at their fingertips because they built it, and our engineering team has built it. Um, a number of different modules that they can use to um, attack, let's say, incoming Zendesk data, make uh, all the features they need, and spit out those predictions, which are then consumed by our API middleware um, uh, from what we call the Wise Factory, which are the ones who are responsible for making those predictions. But when the data science team is building this for the first time, they're basically just building this on their laptop, and they've got static data sets of essentially historical data dumps from, say, company X, Y, and Z, and they're making sure that they're getting out good answers um, because you can do all the normal tricks of holding out some of the data and making predictions on that where you know the answers. You get your expected levels of accuracy. So they can wind up basically gaining a lot of confidence in this. And then uh, what they've done is they've instantiated this whole workflow in the form of a large JSON config file, which may have slight diffs from customer to customer, but is really just the diffs off of this, this um, generalized workflow we've built. They can then basically, because of what we've done, push that into production um, very easily. So it's at, at the command line level or GUI level, they're basically saying, I want this now to be in production for this client. Um, and you know, every, every workflow has its own uh, you know, MD5 hash, so it's, it's completely unique. Um, it's stored in a place that we can go back and roll back to other configs. Um, and then it's no longer the job of the data scientist, once they've pushed that into production, to, to maintain it, to own it. Um, they will watch our dashboards to make sure that the accuracies um, as wind up reali- being realized in production are actually what we think they should be. Um, and we set off alarm bells when something doesn't happen, like a prediction hasn't happened over the last hour when typically we're expecting you know, a 10 a second. So some, some major fail-safes wind up you know, raising alarm bells, but that's more from an operations perspective. Um, mm. So we really just want to make sure that data scientists are part of the 
um, you know, the building of those templatized data science workflows and the implementation engineers are the ones that are making those little tweaks. But after that, it's really just an operations problem. Um, and so okay. making that as seamless as possible, that handover has been where a huge amount of our efforts gone into. Mm. So, uh, and part of your system is built in C++. Part of it is a Python program that consumes the C++. What is the separation of concerns there, and what is the API between the C++ and the Python? I'm just trying to understand who who works with what side of the code, which, like, are, are, is it data scientists working explicitly with the Python, and you have implementation engineers who are working with the C++, or I'd just like to know more about the that side of things. Yeah, so one of my co-founders, um, Damien Eads, um, is our sort of uh, native C++ guru, and he comes from a really interesting place of having uh, worked in computer vision world where, um, you know, on a uh, memory and resource-constrained environment, you're, you need to work at essentially frame rate. So think about on, top, on robots or on drones. Um, you need to make inferences essentially in real time, but you don't have an infinite, you know, supercomputing budget. So you're not going to run TensorFlow, um, you know, on a, on an ARM chip. Um, so he started approaching some of the, the the machine learning that we needed to do from how do we um, simultaneously uh, maximize accuracy while minimizing the time to learn or time to predict, and also not blowing up memory. And so it's those three axes on the learning side that are often um, simultaneously neglected. Uh, many times you'll see people write blog posts about how fast their, their thing is or how accurate it is, um, but they won't talk about the third axis. Um, and so uh, at the C++ layer, it allows us to care simultaneously about all those three. Damien and his team have been able to build up essentially our whole learning process. Um, and a big part of that turns out just being very mindful about how you lay data out in memory. Um, if you're smart about it, it means you can very easily uh, move data from disk to RAM um, through, the, through the cache hierarchy and do um, computation on that in a parallelized way without lots of inefficiencies that come um, that you might get if you were building in sort of a higher level language. So he's built a large um, a software suite of the C++ layer that allows us to be very, very efficient in, in learning and prediction. Um, and all of the you know, interesting innovations that have come from the data science team that make its way in the C++ team you know, are starting at the whiteboard level where we're saying, well, somebody just wrote this paper about how to do this type of machine learning um, or, you know, use this split criterion in a decision for us. Uh, that doesn't quite work for us, but we've got this other idea. They'll whiteboard that out. Um, they'll sort of uh, test it and build out, you know, examples of that in Python. And then it'll get pushed into our C++ stack. Then in a new release, um, we have a, an API layer that we've created that allows the um, Python to leverage all the fast and, and good stuff that comes from C++. And our data science team is then building out those workflows in, in the Python layer. So it's then the implementation team, which isn't working at C++ or Python, they're working more at the config level, which is um, you know, making the little tweaks that need to happen to get that specific client into, into production. Mm. Okay. One of, the, one of the terms that I've heard you mention uh, when you're talking about machine learning is weak contracts. And a weak contract is uh, an abstraction that bleeds into higher level components or lower level components, depending on how you're looking at it. 
What what is it about machine learning systems that give rise to weak contracts between abstraction levels? So a, a good example, and this one um, came from Leon Bateau um, in his uh, he he gave an ICML talk about this uh, fairly recently. Is you have um, let's say a great machine learning uh, model which given a bunch of images, can make predictions about, let's say, what the most important object is in that image. And, you know, I can tell you as somebody who's built this machine learning um, package that the level of accuracy is this, and the contract I'm going to make with you is that if you give me an image, if I tell you the answer, I'm going to tell you a probability, and that's a well-calibrated probability. So if I tell you there's a shoe in this image with 90% confidence, um, you, if I told you that on 10 images with 90% confidence, nine of those would have a shoe and, and one of those wouldn't have a shoe, right? So that's the contract I'm going to make with you. Now you wind up calling me because you're now building a, a new app um, to find shoes and images because that's how you roll. Um, and you're going to now leverage my, uh, my black box. And I've guaranteed to you from all the tests that I've ever done that um, – this is uh, what you can expect back. And you better architect your entire system around the fact that I could be wrong 10% of the time. So now you start giving me images and I start telling you that every image has a shoe in it or no images have a shoe. And it turns out you're just giving me images of like, um, I don't know, uh, a, a, a basketball court or, um, or images of, of different dolphins, right? Um, <laughs> the, the weak contract here is that the assumptions that went into building up um, my explanation of, of what I'm willing to sign up to uh, are not always made explicit and are not always well understood by other consumers of that part of that stack. Um, and there's some amazing examples of this where if you look at uh, you know, benchmark um, image classification problems where you're trying to do uh, over a thousand class problem, how good is my accuracy? And you do all the right things where you hold out, you know, 30% of the data, and then you write your paper saying, I've built this amazing way of, of, of getting, uh, you know, high accuracy on this multi-class problem. And from my held out testing data that I knew nothing about, I get this level. Um, there's an example, uh, and I'm, I'm, I don't remember the reference offhand, where you do this just on, the, on, a, on a class of automobiles or cars. And there's about seven or eight papers that claim what their accuracy is. If you then apply that same classifier to other benchmark data sets, also with cars in them, they vastly overestimate their, their accuracy. So here's an example where it's still just an image classification problem. It's, it's cars. And even though you've done a great job in holding out data, there's something about the fact that the data itself is different, right? Maybe some of these images were taken um, on, with cell phone cameras, Others were taken with different aspect ratios by a certain individual at a certain time of day. And all these assumptions about what the data is that went into um, uh, building the model uh, are completely eroded. And so that's where those weak contracts wind up, wind up biting you. Mm, okay, I understand. So um, I want to start to close off, uh, conclude by you know, zooming out and talking about your work in a broader context You've been involved in several academic domains. You've also been involved in uh, an industry, of course. Um, so I'm curious how machine learning is approached differently in academia versus industry. Um, well, I'd say 
broadly, and this is you know a gross mischaracterization because I'm sure there's counterexamples. Broadly, machine learning is only just making its way um, into academia uh, and academic research, in part because um, you know it's a new it's a new tool as viewed by uh, domain scientists, for instance. So, if you're a physicist, there are a couple of really interesting problems where machine learning's been around for a while. Um, so, for instance, in uh, in particle physics, machine learning has been used in, in particular neural nets. Um, for deciding as a new particle is coming through a, a collider whether you're going to save the data or not. Um, mm, and they've, yes. been, they've been using this for something like 20 years um, because they had to. Um, in my own work, we were using machine learning to help us do discovery on massive amounts of images and essentially real time because we realized that we couldn't get enough graduate students to look at the data, even though my, my colleagues were telling me just hire more grad students I knew you had to scale something sublinearly with people. Um, and so, so obviously machine learning was born out of itself as a discipline, was born out of computer science and mathematics um, and, and statistics. Uh, and so it itself had come out of academia, but its use as a tool is only just starting to work its way into um, the physical domains and more broadly, essentially wherever there's um, uh, interesting data questions. And I think that's important uh, in some sense uh, because machine learning um, isn't sort of an end to itself, right? Given all the stuff we've just talked about, this is a big pain in the ass. And so you don't do machine learning, you know, in your work because it's fun. In some sense, you do it because you have to. And there are no other mm. tools that are available to you uh, that are easier to use, frankly, um, and easier to put in production. Uh, and so you're just compelled to, to, to have to use it. And so I think um, what's happening is that machine learning is starting to show up in interesting, interesting science domains because it's a, it's a, it's a useful and viable tool and the, and the alternatives um, aren't all that good or don't give as high a level of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, on, the, on the business side, I think it's a very similar thing. Um, the companies that have been using machine learning for years are the ones that did it because they realized that was the path they needed to, to, uh, to head down to achieve scalability, to achieve high levels of accuracy, to continue to learn on the data as it winds up coming in. And all the innovations that have come in the, uh, on, in the industry side have come in particular because they've, been, uh, they've hit the forefront of what other algorithms and other approaches could give them and innovations needed to happen so that they could get to the, to the next level. Um, so, so, so I think in some sense there's different motivations, but ultimately the North star in both, um, academia and in industry is answering a problem is answering a question. Um, and if that, that question is how can I make more money or the question is how can I discover something that no one's seen before? Um, or how can I make better sense of my data in an interesting way? Those those are all places where machine learning over time may wind up having a, a really important um, uh, impact. Interesting. Well, that sounds like a great place to close off. Uh, Josh, I want to thank you for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been really interesting talking to you about Wise.io and machine learning in general. And um, if you ever have anything to announce or discuss, feel free to come back on the show. Will do. Thanks so much. <laughs>